Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Christina Vodka. Christina is one of the most impactful, established, and original thought leaders in Silicon Valley. There won't be many of you listening who haven't at least heard of her groundbreaking and best-selling book on OKR's Radical Focus, now in its second edition. A self-described curious human, With a serious big tech resume, her work in design and product has included redesigns and IPOs at companies such as LinkedIn, MySpace, Zynga, and Yahoo. But those big names only scratch the surface of Christina's professional story. She has also worked as a design consultant, as a co-founder of the Information Architecture Institute, has also been a co-founder of a tech startup, and is the founder and original publisher of the popular online design magazine, Boxes and Arrows, now under the care and protection of another Brave UX guest, Amy Jimenez Marquez. Christina is currently preparing the next generation of product and game designers for the real world, working in a full-time capacity as a lecturer at Stanford University. And she has previously taught creative entrepreneurship as an associate professor at California College of the Arts. Aside from writing Radical Focus, did I mention that it's now in its second edition? Christina is the author of three other books, Information Architecture, Blueprints for the Web, Pencil Me In, the business drawing book for people who can't draw. That's definitely me. And The Team That Managed Itself, A Story of Leadership. When Christina is not lecturing or writing, she is often found speaking publicly and advising privately across the world on topics such as design thinking for innovation, implementing OKRs with radical focus, designing high-performance teams, and working with storytelling. And now she's here to spin a few yarns with me on Brave UX. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a guest here. It is uh, my pleasure. I've uh, really been looking forward to this conversation as we were talking about before we hit record. And we got through some technical difficulties together. So we're now here. It's happening. Christina, you are someone who is an interesting person. And I mean that in the truest and most meaningful sense of that word. One of the many things that I learned about you preparing for today was that you used to do a bit of swing dancing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What is swing dancing for the unenlightened and how did you get involved in it? Oh, I was a swing kid. Gosh, that was so long ago. I mean, when uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy was on the charts and uh, Swingers was in the cinema, I should say. And yeah, I was living in San Francisco at the time and I would walk down to uh, Club Deluxe and I would swing dance, you know, almost like three to five nights a week. I just love dancing so much. So swing dancing is what they did back in the uh, back in the 40s into the 50s a little bit. And it's the kind where everybody wears the big skirts and they throw each other in the air. There was no throwing in the air with me and my best friend. But 
we love dancing. A couple of times he almost dropped me into the drums, though. So that was a that was a thrill. <laughs> Are you still dude. friends? Yes, we're still really good friends. Absolutely. It's good. I actually I didn't know much about swing dancing, but I did watch some videos before we jumped on the call and could see it's really high energy. It's it certainly looks like a really good workout. Oh, it's so much fun, though. The best part. And I love the music anyway. Um, mm. I remember my father going, why are you listening to the music of, of my father? You know, why are you listening to your grandfather's music? And I'm like, because it's awesome, because it swings, you know. So I was glad to see the revival of and I still listen to it all the time. So what, if anything, did you learn from your time swing dancing that you've applied in other areas of your life? Oh, well, if you want to learn how to uh, collaborate, it's really fascinating to swing dance because you really have to pay very close attention to your partner because they're leading you. Although I think my friend and I took turns leading each other a little bit. He would complain that I was leading again. But uh, eventually, after doing enough dancing together, that we just had a feeling about each other. Like, I'm, he's going to flip me. He's going to spin me under his arm, you know? And so that sort of paying very, very close attention to someone and then practice. You don't, you don't get that the first time. And I think there's a lot of teams that get together um, for the very first time and they think, okay, we're just going to dive into it. We're just going to do it, right? We're going to start building this product, but you're going to fall into the drums, I think, if you do that. You really have to get to know each other. You have to decide on the norms. How are we going to interact? How are we going to solve conflict? How are we going to deal with challenges? And you have to be willing to constantly evolve it, you know, constantly get better. I love doing weekly retros with teams, and I loved dancing a lot, practice, and then going, hey, you remember that one time when you spun me and I got stuck, <laughs> then let's not do it that way again. So again, just it, it's all about feedback and learning. Now with, with the dancing, you mentioned there that there was sometimes some tension or it sounded like between you and your partner where they felt that you were starting to lead the dance. And that yes. to me is, is, is a really interesting, interesting uh, observation or self-observation of yours. Is that a tension that you have experienced in, in your professional career uh, with peers or uh, people that you are being managed by, that tension between who's going to take charge here and who's actually going to follow the other person's lead? Oh my gosh, there's always a lot of tension. Like how do we decide what we're mm -hmm. going to do going forward? I remember ages ago, I was reading a book that was a bunch of interviews with CEOs and there's one quote I've never forgotten, which is if we're arguing with opinions, my opinion wins. And I realized, yeah, that's that if you're in a position where you're not the final decider, which almost nobody really is, to be honest, then you have to argue with logic, with insights, with data. You can't just be like, I really feel it's this way. And I'm like, I'm glad you have feelings. Good, good for you. But I also think about a lot when I first started coaching. So I was, uh, I went to a Stanford continuing education a while back. They have the most amazing teachers there. It's just continuing education. And I actually took a class from Julia Child's editor on how to do food writing. I mean, it's just really fun and smart and amazing. But I took this one day coaching class and I hadn't really realized that when you go into coach, you are not coaching with your body of knowledge. You're coaching to listen, and you're really helping people learn how to solve their own problems and teach them a way of looking at things. And I've got to say, I'm a fixer. I'm a fixer all the way down to my toes. So I'd be talking to someone, and I'm like, I know the answer. I know the answer. I'm like, Hermione, ah, ah, I can't. And I was like, no, I, 
okay, I've got to figure out, I have to ask them a question. I have to ask them to compare. What's the advantage of this? What's the advantage of that? And that was me learning not to lead more than almost anything else in my life was. And then at the very end, you can say, hey, I have a couple ideas if you'd like to hear them. Consent makes everything possible, right? So once a person goes, oh, yes, it's them changing their mindset. Instead of you just dumping ideas to them, you're offering your ideas. And then when they say, yes, I'd like to hear them, they, they're still in a position of power. They're still in a position of control. And that makes it easier for them to hear what you're trying to say. You've just made a rather large light bulb go off in my brain. And it's to do with giving people advice. And every now and then, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. But just recently, I had a situation with a friend that I felt compelled to offer them some advice, you know, sort of take it or leave it kind of advice. But that technique that you've just mentioned there of actually asking for their consent, you know, checking in with them as to whether or not they're ready for it. Yeah. I feel like I didn't do a very good job of that and I probably never have. So this conversation, mm. we may as well just end it here. That's been super valuable. Thank you, Christina. <laughs> no, just kidding. But, you know, that is, wow, what an insight. And you seem to suggest that this is something that, you know, that taking that um, breath and asking for that consent and letting the other p person be receptive of this sounds like that's something that's also been a bit of a, I don't want to say struggle, but it's certainly something that you've been working on. And I want to go back in now, if we may, into your, into your childhood. And uh, <laughs> while this, this isn't a therapy session, I promise, but I was curious about a couple of dimensions of, of your life. One of them that you've just raised uh, proactively here, which is this, um, this will to lead and this ability to lead and how you're working on your leadership style over time. But the other thing that I wanted to touch on was that I heard you briefly reflect on your childhood in a previous interview. I think it was on the product podcast one. And I heard you say, and I'll quote you now, I was one of those kids who in seventh grade tried to read every book in the library. <laughs> and I was wondering, where did this thirst, where did you, I mean, you're clearly, you're a, a, you have a thirst for knowledge. It's expressed in, in your career that we can see publicly now, but where did this originate from? Who knows? Is it nature? Is it nurture? I mean, I've always been curious and I always want to know things and I love it. I love that feeling of going from being confused or lost or feeling, I don't even know how to say it. Like there's a hole in me about things that I don't understand and don't know. And so, yeah, my whole life I've been I just enjoy it. So I read every book because we didn't have the internet then. So I just, anything anybody wanted to teach me, I was down for it. Sometimes I think it's, we've lost something that way because it used to be that I would literally read absolutely anything, which meant I would read much more broadly than I do now. It's very easy to get only the kind of books you like. And if you don't like something, there's 40, 50, 100 more in the same space that you could read instead. I think that being pushed is is good. I just experienced it again and it was horrible and then wonderful. So this spring I was teaching a college class because he was on sabbatical and it's uh, social computing. And this is my space. I, I worked at LinkedIn, MySpace, et cetera. And I thought, okay, I can, I can take over this class. It'll be super easy. Things have changed. There's a lot of new knowledge since then. And so I'm reading like five to 10 academic papers a week. In the beginning, it was like a nightmare. I was like digging, going, oh, why do people have to write like this? But after a while, I got good at it. It's like any muscle, you know? It's like, okay, here's where the useful information is, where here's where the conclusions are, this is what it means within the larger scope of things. And it made me 
better. And so I think it's very important for people to think about what am I doing to improve myself and what am I doing to take care of myself? So every morning when I get coffee, I read. And because I just woke up and I have coffee, I read hard stuff, stuff like the academic papers. And then every evening when I'm tired, I have a glass of wine or soda water, depending on the evening. And I'll read fun fiction just to relax. And that rhythm of getting yourself to grow, but then relaxing and enjoying, it's, it's very important, I think. At least it's very important for me. I know that's been a, a journey of discovery for you as well throughout your career. And I do want to come to, in particular, your time at Zynga and your decision around leaving the corporate life behind in favor of education. And, we'll, and we'll, I promise we'll get there. Before we do, though, is it true that you come from a long line of librarians? There have been a surprising number of librarians in my family. My parents were lawyers, which is not librarians, but trust me, a lot of words, a lot of books in their mm -hmm. lives. But yeah, and my cousin Katie is currently a, a practicing librarian, and there's librarians throughout. I mean, books were always part of my growing up, and my parents would take me to a bookstore, and we were so poor. We were so broke when we were growing up. Sometimes we'd have scrambled eggs for dinner because that was the most affordable way to get protein, and that's fine, right? Luckily, my dad is a tremendous cook. Um, but if we went to a bookstore, I could have any book I wanted. It was just understood. Like I would find a book and my parents would buy it for me. And it sort of built into me this idea that some things are worth paying for no matter what. And knowledge is one of them. There's been a high price paid in many respects for many people to actually create and for us to have that knowledge that we now have so much ease of access to as well. And I think that's a what you've said is, is a wonderful gift that your parents gave you. Where did they get that gift from? Oh, just we're very literate people going back. Like I said, lots of librarians, lots of other reading professions throughout. But they met at Carleton College, and it's a very small university in Minnesota. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's in the middle on the top bits. And uh, very cold and lots and lots of reading. I mean, I think we often want to know where things come from, but I think it's more important to ask ourselves, what does this thing mean for me? So I can't say, I can't say where it came from. I know this is who I am. It's like, I suppose, like being gay or being female or being male, you kind of just know these things. I know I'm built to learn. And that's something that's as profound about me as any other aspect of who I am. Well, speaking of another aspect of who you are, I, I heard you mention almost casually in one of your other interviews that you had dyslexia. Is, is this the case? Oh, yes. I have dyslexia and ADHD. It's been fun with ADHD because, you know, if you read the literature, they say, oh, it's most often found in children. But now I have all these friends who are like, I just got diagnosed with ADHD. I just got diagnosed. And so I think it was diagnosed in children, but I think it's prevalent in adults as well. And the reason it's diagnosed in children, along with dyslexia, is the teacher's go, this kid will not sit still and listen to me, you know, or this kid writes, can't spell to save their life, which was basically things that people thought about me. And it's actually, it's a little bit dyslexia and my kid has it too, but it's mostly dys, uh, dyscalculia, which is something very few people have heard of. So I usually say dyslexia, but it's really very extreme with numbers and maps. Um, although I think dyslexics have trouble with maps too. It's a symbol recognition problem in your brain which means often you're very verbal. You're often really good at 
taking in audio information and you're and it's harder for you to either read or do math or combination. And it does usually mean dysgraphia, which is terrible handwriting. Because again, making the symbols is hard. So we've been reading and writing only fairly recently in the history of all humanity. John McWhorter says that if all of human history was a clock, we started reading at 11 p.m. So that kind of gets you an idea. So we're not completely evolved to reading. Some people are more, some people are less. And then when you evolve towards reading, you get a little lazy in the audio processing. That's my understanding. I'm not a doctor, just a nerd who likes to research these things out. So instead of thinking of it as a, a learning problem, you have to see it as sort of something that has pluses and minuses, just like everything else. I'm good at some things and I'm less good at other things. And if I'm not good at it, I just have to work harder. So, Well, something that you are very good at, masterful at, is storytelling, whether that be spoken, like we're doing today, or whether mm -hmm. that be in the books that you've written. So hearing you talk about the dyslexia that you have and I can't say it properly, but I'll have a go. Dyscalculia, is that yeah, close? Yeah, dyscalculia, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is this something, this storytelling, this ability to communicate meaning to people and for really for them to have a deep understanding of what it is that you're getting across to them, is this something that has come easy to you or is this something that you've actually had to work quite hard at from perhaps a, a base that, that is you know, not the same starting point as some other people may have had? Well, it's very, very easy for me to tell stories orally. I've always made them up since I was little. I always have these really complicated, ridiculous fantasy stories, and it was really fun. And I'd tell stories to my kid that I'd make up. But writing is um, actually fairly hard, partially because I have uh, repetitive stress injuries, RSI, a little bit like carpal tunnel. And Typing, I never learned to type properly. I think all kids are taught to type properly now, but back in the old days, you would learn to type if that was going to be part of your profession. You know, now it's unavoidable. So I'm not the world's best typist. And so when I'm writing things down, I'm a little, I'm, I'm definitely slower, but I think that that lends my prose an economy in the style in that I... No, I'll never write purple prose. It's just too much work. I'll always write things that are much more on the Hemingway side. Not that I'm Hemingway, but, you know, a little shorter, a little crisper. And it means I'll think a little more about each sentence because I have to. I have to. And I think that that's actually a benefit. I think most things in life people categorize as either bad or good. And very few of them are either. Most of the time, it's a mess of things. So, sure, I wish I could type super fast. But that's not who I am, and there are some advantages to going slow. That is a realization that I assume only comes with a healthy dose of hard work and self-reflection. And we've mm. been talking for the most part and age. Yeah. As I age, I'm finding out that there are some positive and negative parts of getting older, but we won't go we won't yep. go into those. You know, we've we've been talking about learning for the for the most part here, and I know that. For the past 11 years or so, you've been helping students, as I mentioned in your introduction, to learn about design. And you spent a significant part of your career before that, both as a design and product leader within tech organizations. And your efforts there seem to me at least to have been trying to help those organizations to learn what works, what doesn't, and why. You've also, through your work at Boxes and Arrows, which is now, as I mentioned, Amy Jimenez-Marquez is looking after now and in charge of, you've been helping 
and through the Inf- um, Information Architecture Institute, you've been helping designers to learn things that advance their practice. Why has supporting other people's learning been such a central focus for your career? Well, the short answer is nakas, which is a wonderful Yiddish word that means the pride in somebody else's accomplishment. So when your kid hits a home run or your students make something really incredible, which mine definitely do, like a really smart escape room. I taught game design in the spring and um, they made escape rooms, which was so awesome. It's like a high, you know, they're feeling good because they're making stuff and they're learning and you're feeling good because you get to be there and part of it. It's just it's a fabulous emotion. I really enjoy it. The other one is really simple, which is, man, things suck. I think tech is a shit show. I hate to say it. Look at the tools we're using. They're buggy. They're crappy. And people are doing things that are very ethically sus, like, uh, you know, a little button that used to say, yes, I want to get the newsletter. No, thank you. Now says, yes, I want the newsletter. Maybe later. You know, and that way they can keep popping the pop up on you over and over and over again. And I'm just so frustrated at the sort of abusive relationship that human beings and technology seem to have at this time. And I say at this time because, you know, in the old days, walk 10 miles each way uphill to school. Now, back in the old days, there was a real passion for human computer interaction, really making things good, making people more efficient, making people feel more satisfied, you know, really making them happy. And I think that a lot of people fall in this tension between making money or making people happy. And I just think that's lazy. You know, if you work hard enough, you can get all the goals met. And so I wanted to, well, I didn't just do it right away. You know, when I left industry, I, am I jumping ahead? Um, no, no, no. Left, go wherever you like. Well, when I left industry, I was just so friggin' burned out. You know, I was really tired. I was like, okay, I have to do something else. What will it be? I thought, well, I really love food. So I went to culinary school for six weeks, not the full two years. And I love that. I learned so much, but it was too physically demanding for someone who's a little bit older. Uh, You're on your feet a long time. And so I thought, well, maybe not culinary school, so maybe I'll help a food startup, you know, and I consulted with some food startups and I realized that the food business has really low margins. And if I kept doing it, I would end up hating food. So I said, okay, let's leave food in this happy place as a hobby. Let's not do it for a living. And I thought, well, maybe I'd like to teach. And I taught one class in the evening, met twice a week uh, at General Assembly. And I thought, I really like this. I really like this a lot. It feels good. And whenever I'm looking at my life, I think I think about what am I optimizing for? Am I optimizing for money or am I optimizing for joy or am I optimizing for learning? And I used to optimize for learning, but I've been more and more optimizing for joy, which includes learning for me anyway. And so I was following that that trail of joy, like how can I make myself happy? And teaching turned out to be something that made me profoundly happy and gave me meaning a lot of meaning. So I want products to be good. I want my life to be happy. I want to work where I have a good skill set, you know, where I'm strong and I have knowledge. And this met all the things I was looking for. So yeah, I did design simply because that was the easiest one to do and find out about. But this 
fall, I'm teaching a new product management class at Stanford, which I'm very excited by. I've always want, taught business back in the art school, you know, to, to designers. I'm like, designers should understand business because that way they'll get invited to all the good meetings. But then uh, now I'm like trying to say, okay, how do you balance? How do you navigate and balance thinking about, you know, keeping the business healthy and keeping your customers committed to your company and working well with the people inside the company. So with this class, human-centered product management, I'm going to be teaching not only how to understand customers, but also how do you work with other human beings who are not like you? And that can be quite challenging. Yes, can't it? One of life's uh, greatest challenges is how do we work together with the people that are close to us and also the people we come into occasional contact with. It's certainly something that I think I mentioned before we recorded, I'm an only child, so it's maybe something that hasn't naturally <laughs> come to me. I've uh, been working on myself. You mentioned leaving Zynga. You said, I, I don't know if I'm quoting you correctly here, but it sounded like burnout or near to burnout, what you were experiencing. That was back in 2012, right? So that's around about a decade ago. I just want to quote something that you said when you about leaving Zynga now, which is uh, because you swore it was going to be your last corporate job, right? And you said, I've been a senior executive for quite a while. And I will tell you something about being a senior executive. You do not own your own time. I used to message my boss at 2 a.m. because that's when she had the time to talk to me. I realized this was not really a life that was working out for me. Mm-hmm. What's not like what what's not to like about messaging your boss at 2 a.m.? You know, <laughs> isn't that just what we do? I'm a big fan of questioning what just what we do as much as humanly possible. And if I can't change the world, at least I can change my world. So yeah, you don't own your time. There's all these critical meetings. There's all these critical conversations. You're running around. If you want to do get anything done, it has to happen when the workday's ended because the whole workday is full of meetings and whatnot. And some of the meetings are great and some of the meetings are horrible. I don't hate all meetings. The reality is if you're a manager, your job is to go to meetings. So you just have to suck it up and figure out how to make them make going to meetings acceptable to you. Make the meetings better is usually the answer to that. But yeah, I was like, no, I want I want time to really think. I'm starting to think that right now we should start a slow tech movement. I don't know if you've ever heard of the slow food movement. I think it's really wonderful. It happened when the first McDonald's was opened up in Rome near the Trevi Fountain. And it so upset the Italians. They started the slow food movement, which said, let's take our time and use beautiful ingredients and make things from hand. And for me, slow tech would be, let's slow down and really think about about these hard decisions that we're making so facilely. You know, can we sit down and really think, what are the ethical ramifications of these choices? What would happen if it went horribly sideways, right? And these are all really, really important questions. You know, what's interesting about the that McDonald's is I believe I actually visited that McDonald's when I was in Rome and now I feel <laughs> terrible. It's almost <laughs> like it was... <laughs> It was a decision that I should have thought harder about. But the reason why I was heading to Trevi, uh, to the Trevi Fountain is uh, after World War II, my grandfather, who served in the New Zealand Army and fought mm-hmm. in North Africa and Italy, he um, had a photo taken of, of him and some of his mates oh. after Italy um, 
after the campaign was no more after the war and Europe had been won um, on the Trevi Fountain and also on the, I think there's a step somewhere nearby as well. So uh, anyway, I, di- I digress. I understand that when you were reframing your, you were talking about big tech and the, and the need to introduce the slow tech element to what we're doing so we can more deeply consider the decisions that we're making. But we were also talking about earlier this tension, I don't even know if it's a tension, but this just reality that exists that unless you're the CEO, unless you have the ability to make decisions just because you feel that they're the right things to do, you often have to live with the decisions that others make for you. How do you think about the the accountability often that maybe more so in design than product, but I don't want to paint with a a very broad brush here, but how do you feel about the sort of anxiety that people in design sometimes feel about what it is that they're contributing to when the outcome for our users or our customers or our fellow humans on the world may not be entirely positive, or at least it's unclear as to whether or not we're actually doing a good or a bad thing. So how do we reconcile that we're not the decision makers, but yet we still have to earn a living and and put a roof over our family's heads? I mean, there's, well, first of all, even CEOs don't get to say we're just doing this. They could but it probably would make it harder to lead. It would probably have bad ramifications. It probably wouldn't be done the way they'd like it to be done because they're not going to sit there and micromanage everybody, that little group, because they've got such a huge company to pay attention to, although some certainly try hard. But uh, one of the real shocks of becoming a senior exec is that you have less control than you thought you were going to. And if you check out, there's a classic HBR article, Seven Surprises for New CEOs. Uh, he goes through all the reasons why. It's quite good. I even wrote a Box and Arrows article talking about seven surprises for new managers based on that and crediting him. So yeah, yeah, you work on something and you don't think it's right. So it's very contextual. Like how bad is it, right? Is it worth going to war? Because if you go to war over every single thing, you don't get invited to the important meetings where decisions are made. What you want to do is build as much social capital as you possibly can by being smart, by really listening, by knowing the entire space, not just the visual design or not just the interaction or the IA, but actually understanding the business, the customers and who the competitors are. If you see something that's really problematic, then you have to figure out where the wedge is. I uh, I often think of knocking a wedge into the wall of the product decisions. And sometimes it's a person you can talk to who has more social capital than you, or it can be, you can go around to each person and talk to them separately. So you can build consensus by doing it individually. And there's arguments that you can make, for example, uh, well, what would happen if, you know, the New York Times wrote about this decision we've made? Would that make us look good? A lot of people don't like to look bad in the press, but it's a very delicate thing you have to do. The other thing is be careful who you work for. I know there are places where people don't have a lot of choices, although with remote, hopefully that won't always be the same. But I tell my students never work for a company that doesn't share your values because you can survive if the company makes some bad decisions or you disagree with the strategy. But if they fundamentally don't share your core values, you are going to be unhappy and you're going to rage quit at some point. So really look at the company, look at the website, look past their blah, blah PR marketing and try to say, okay, considering they've made these choices, this is what I think their values are. How comfortable am I living with those? 
It sounds like actions speak louder than words. Always, always. You don't lie with what you do. You spoke about values, and I, I want to just briefly come back to you and your personal values because one of them appears to be, at least to me, self-reliance. And mm-hmm. I understand that every year you reread Emerson's essay from 1841 called, funnily enough, Self-Reliance. When did you start doing this and what was the inspiration behind that? It's a funny question, just because I can't really remember. I remember reading it and going, oh, this is really important. I want to remember this. And then I'm a big fan of temporal landmarks. Dan Pink talks about in his book, When. And so you just have to hook things to moments in time, like a holiday or a Monday. I mean, the OKR system I have is full of temporal landmarks. And so I just picked uh, one. And actually, I still read it but not before I read it consciously. I thought the first of September, I'll read Self-Reliance. Maybe I will do it tomorrow and or today for you. But now I'll just pull it up. And the thing that I really, really wanted to remember is that everybody hears that phrase, and I've heard designers use it, which is uh, consistency is the hot, uh, hobgoblin of little minds, right? But if you read the whole thing about it, it talks about the importance of not being afraid to contradict yourself. And he talks about all these great men who, when they learn something new, they said, okay, I was wrong. I'm doing this now. And you'll see this, like, especially in political messages, everybody's complaining, you know, oh, this person's wishy-washy. They keep changing their mind. And I I call that learning. (laughs) So I try to do that to remind myself, you know, if I said something a while ago and learned it was wrong, the right thing to do is to accept that it was wrong and, and grow and change. And it's very short. It's a short essay. And it really talks about learning how to trust yourself enough to be wrong, if that makes sense. It does. How do you take that insight from Emerson, if you do this, and try and instill this approach to learning in your students? Wow. I I don't know if I've ever been super conscious about that. I do believe profoundly in psychological safety in the classroom. I came across Amy Edmondson's work fairly early. I really love it. Uh, She wrote the tremendous book, the really wonderful book, The Fearless Organization. I would recommend it to anyone because it's a fun read and there's good information all the way through as opposed to repeating yourself halfway through the book like some books do. But to create psychological safety in the classroom or in a business is to make a place where people can disagree with you, where people can ask questions where people can ask for clarification. And it's really critical for learning and for excellence. Because if people are afraid to correct you, you may launch something that's broken or even dangerous. So learning how to be wrong, learning how to ask those questions are critical. And that's where that self-reliance comes in. So with my students, when I was interviewing at Stanford, one of the people who was interviewing me said, I've never seen teaching feedback like this, because, you know, you get the class evaluations. They say your students really love you and they say you're really blunt. How can both these things be true? And uh, what I do is I just, I love them. I care about the students tremendously. So when I say this is not going to work because of X, Y, Z, they don't care. You know, it's fine. Look, you told me it wasn't working and you didn't, you didn't dance around it. And I'm like, I think if you can address this, this could be really tremendous, you know? This could really be a successful project. So I think because of that approach to feedback, where I'm very honest because I want them to be as awesome as I think they can be, I think uh, 
I think there's something there that ties back to Emerson, which is making them realize that it's really important to grow, that growing is more important than saving face. And I just heard, I love the podcast Hidden Brain and Adam Grant's on it right now. And he was talking about, there's a difference between, oh gosh, I want to put it the way he did it, but it's like, there's a difference between feedback about a person and feedback about a task. So if you're talking about a person and you're saying, wow, you know, you're funny looking. Wow. I don't know how you can go out with that beard. Your beard is lovely, by the way. It's different than saying, you know, I really think that if you added 15 minutes, got people to come on 10 minutes before the podcast, that might be a great way to work out some of the technical kinks and make sure everything works. So, you know, if I say that, you're like, oh yeah, that's probably a good idea. You don't get all freaky. But if I say that there's something wrong with you as a person, then it's really hard to take that well. Yeah, and that that speaks to the difficulty that a lot of people, myself included, have with taking on feedback if it's framed in such a way that makes you feel like you're on the back foot and defensive because you're being personally challenged. I might be wrong, but I think, for me anyway, I really do have to love people, and I've learned to do that. My agreement with myself is once you walk in my classroom, I love you. Even if you're driving me completely insane, which, but that's like kids, right? Kids will drive you insane, but you never stop loving them. And when you love somebody, then giving them advice becomes an imperative. Giving them your help is really important. And they can tell, I think people can tell if they're loved or if they're hated. Just reflecting on what you've been talking about in terms of your style, which is to be loving, but blunt and to give feedback about the task and not the person. I wonder if through your observations working within tech organizations and now within the university context, whether you've seen a retraction in people's ability to speak what's on their mind, as flawed as it may be, as a result of the heavy social consequences that can come into play if someone's intent or meaning is not construed in a way that the other person is able to understand what they were actually saying. Mm, I'm not sure I know what you mean about uh, consequences. Are you talking within the job or somewhere else? Yeah, I suppose what I'm talking about is that the expression of opinion seems to be something that people are more wary of these days as a result of, you know, the angry Twitter mob and things that <laughs> yeah. things that can happen if you say, even in a professional context within an industry such as design, you know, people talk about design Twitter coming down like a ton of bricks on opinions or dissenting voices that they don't align with or the majority doesn't align with. And I'm just wondering if you have seen this reflected or if you if you can reflect on your past 20, 25 years in the industry and whether or not this is actually something that we are losing or are at risk of losing this ability to be direct and and not offensive, not not with intent to offend, but to be able to discuss something openly with other people in a way that you can be challenging, but without being offensive. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, has it changed? That's the one I can't exactly say. I mean, when I think about the early days, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, I think he's is he still CEO? I'm not sure. Anyway, I worked for him at Yahoo. He was the head of search and marketplace. So it was a, a little smaller and more intimate setting. And he would just say his mind and other people would say their mind. And sometimes it was offensive and sometimes it wasn't, but you kind of had to figure out how to navigate that. And at LinkedIn, people were very honest, but it was more the 
blunt but not personal. It was never personal. That's the kind of company Reed built. So I think that there is a lot of mob behavior on Twitter. The book So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson is just wonderful about that. All these people who have been shamed on Twitter because they made a bad joke or they had a picture that was inappropriate in some context, which they didn't see, you know, but everybody's just a human being, you know, you can't know everything. And the problem with Twitter is it's a bunch of strangers and you can read something that in your head sounded fine. And then when they read it does not sound fine. And what I'd like to see is more people being gentle with each other, but it shouldn't affect smaller, more private spaces. For example, you know, a classroom or a team meeting. In a team meeting, you should be able to say, I have some questions about this. I'm really concerned about X, Y, and Z. And I had to stop there. It was like, I could say, I have a problem with this. Okay, that's going to make people get defensive. Okay, what else could I say? I'm really concerned about this. A mm, little better. You know, how can I talk through this? And sometimes you have to just say, I have a few questions and just ask those questions and see if you get people talking long enough to figure out where how it's gone sideways. And that's practice. I mean, I've been fascinated by interpersonal dynamics for a very long time and been working on it because when I was younger, I hated, hated feedback. You know, you get those annual uh, 360s, you know, and I would just be like terrified beforehand, weeping after. I don't know where I got it in my head, but I feel like when I was much, when I was younger, I thought criticism meant I sucked and I was horrible and I was the worst person to walk this earth. And it was through a combination of books like Difficult Conversations, but much more doing tea groups, which is something that is offered in continuing studies and at the GSB, which is... I cannot explain it. It's really a fascinating training program. And through that, I started to realize that people can criticize me and not hate me at the same time, which was a big step forward. And then I realized I could give people advice and that they didn't necessarily hate me for giving, for pointing out that they were unperfect, unperfect, imperfect. So the more you do these things, and it doesn't end horribly, the easier it is to be brave and step into that space. I guess it's exposure therapy, like they do when you're afraid of snakes or something, you know, you just got to expose yourself to that cycle. And you could take a, a page from the other radical lady, Kim Scott, who does Radical Candor, and actually go up to someone and say, if there was one thing you could say I should stop doing, what would it be? And if there was one thing you think I should keep doing, what would it be? So you could ask for feedback. And then again, I have the control. I have the power. I'm asking for this. And I can get a little more comfortable with that. And you can start with people who say nice things, you know, and work your way to the scary people later. You, you don't have to dive into the deep end of the pool. But I think it's a life skill. I mean, it's not just a design skill. It's not just a product skill. It's not just a corporate company skill. It's a life skill to be able to give and take feedback. And it's worth the extraordinary pain to get that knowledge. 100%. I'm just thinking about a time maybe a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, actually, where I don't know what inspired me to do this. I definitely read something, but I went out and I asked 10 of the people closest to me to, to tell me what I did really well and what I didn't do so well. And the exercise was really around just understanding what my blind spots were mm. and just having that, that curiosity but also a little bit of a will to be better 
and and realizing yeah. that maybe some of my current results were a result of my current actions or behaviors, but that I wasn't quite clear on them. So I 100% hear you there. I, w- I wanted to come back to something you talked about, which was giving feedback uh, and doing 360s and how that way of structuring feedback was a, a little deficient. And I'll quote you again now. You've said, we're doing this corporate feedback thing wrong. At Yahoo, we used to do performance reviews and then spend the next month trying to talk people out of quitting. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you've talked. You've also talked about just a couple of interesting things around feedback. You know, such as talk about the task, not the person, and that you can have the agency to ask for feedback yourself as opposed to have it offered to you. But if we're to talk about aspects of feedback in a in a in a company setting that are outside of the the ones that we've already covered, what's a a better way for, in this case, it could be design leaders who are responsible for giving feedback or product leaders who have to give feedback to their team as well. Well, what is a better way to approach and structure that delivery of that formal feedback that's often tied to things that people care, you know, a lot about, such as mm-hmm. compensation? Yeah. Well, that's part of the problem, of course, is uh, compensation. Don't grade on a curve. That just punishes good managers who are good at getting rid of their bad people. But the most important thing, if you were going to take like one line away from it, is always be looking to shorten feedback loops. So something happens and then you get feedback. And the problem with annual is, of course, if you actually remembered what happened in February or March, which is sort of questionable, it's too late. The person you're talking to probably doesn't really remember it either. You know, it took too long to get to them. And I know, again, human beings don't like to give criticism, so they'll put it off. But it's so much better that if, say, somebody's interrupting somebody else over and over again in meeting, when you step out of the meeting, pull them aside and I say, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I noticed something in that meeting. And I think if you change it, it would help you. Do you have a moment? Again, trying to give them an out if they're not in a good place to hear it. But then say, you know, I know you get excited, but you were interrupting, you know, Susan, and you did it five times. I counted them. And sometimes that makes people a bit defensive. And I was thinking, you know, if you can try to deep breathe or something till you finish your sentence, that would be great. A lot of times when people are interrupting, they're just excited, but it feels very abusive. And that's not what you're trying to do. Sometimes I'll say your actions are not serving your goals, you know. I know you want to be this, but if you continue doing that, it's not going to help. There's a lot of language out there you can borrow and mod so it sounds like you again. These are just my languages, how I would put it. But in that moment, he did it. He can remember it. He could be like, oh, I, I didn't realize I was doing it that much. Huh, okay, I'll try next meeting. And then he can practice. But if you wait till the end of the year and you're like, you interrupt people, you do this, you do this, do this. It's like too much information and a lot of it's too long ago. So shorten feedback cycles. I think performance reviews should be done quarterly. I've worked at companies that do it and it's significantly better. It also means that um, if you can do out of cycle, you know, quarterly promotions and uh, bonuses, that's also really good because that way you don't have to get everything perfect right then. Like if you didn't get it that quarter, there's always next quarter, right? There's always another quarter to to fix it. So there's less stuff for you to fix. You give smaller amounts of feedback, you give it faster, and you can tie the compensation to the positive things and create a stronger link in people's minds. Sounds like you have to be quite comfortable with the risk of conflict. Yep. I mean... You get to a certain age and you run out of fucks, so to speak. I've had conflict and it hasn't killed me, you know, and I have a perfectly lovely job and perfectly lovely life. 
So what is conflict really going to do to you? And if you need to, you can go through your head and say, well, what if they say you're wrong? Hmm? Okay, I gave them advice. They don't want it. That's life. What's going to happen is who are you to say this? And I'm like, hey, I just saw it. No big. You know, you can make up responses to things you're scared they're going to say. And that can help a little bit. But most of the time, they just go, thanks, or, huh, I didn't notice that. Be thoughtful in your language and make sure you're doing it out of love, not revenge or bitterness or anger. But otherwise, it should be good. I've heard you talk about a situation at Zynga where you were first hired and one of the experiences you had was that very soon after starting, a number of people came up to you and told you that you needed to fire someone. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah. And this, this story, I feel, you, I mean, you tell, you tell the story, but I feel the story is quite relevant to a number of things you've been saying, you know, around mm -hmm. the uh, frequency of feedback and having the courage to give people feedback. So yeah. what, did you, what did you end up doing as a result of people telling you that you needed to let this person go? Oh, God. It was like I was so mad. I was like, what, you were saving them for me to fire till I was hired? You, you, could have, you could have taken care of this yourself if you were grown up and a proper manager. And so I've worked in enough big companies that I know how to put somebody on a PIP and I needed a baseline. I wasn't just going to fire them out of, for nothing because that leads to lawsuits. So I did, you know, I talked to a bunch of people. Basically, I did a 360 for her and, and I collected information about what was working, what wasn't working. And then I sat down in a quiet, you know, conference room where nobody could see in and we could talk and gave the feedback because first you have to tell people the feedback and then you have to give them a chance to react to it. And oh my God, she starts crying. And I was like, fuck, it's going to be one of those meetings. This is terrible. She starts to cry. And then she looks at me and goes, thank you. I was like, okay. I thought everybody just hated me, but they hate some of the things I'm doing and I can fix those. She was just, nobody had ever given her any feedback. She had no idea what was going on. And she didn't know that the behaviors she had were causing this kind of trouble. And she turned it around. She really dug in and fixed those behaviors and replaced them with better ones and ended up being a star. And she's somewhere not Zynga where she's very happy and making a bucket of money. I think we make mountains out of molehills sometimes. I mean, surely there's somebody I went to when I was at, uh, when I was at MySpace, I had the opposite situation, which was everybody told me there's this one VP. He's been here since Tom and you can't fire him. He knows all the relationships with vendors. He knows how the architecture set up. He knows all this stuff, but he was going around complaining about the current management all the time. And it was depressing everyone. So I fired him. You know, I went through and said, here, here, here. And he goes, I'm surprised. Uh, it took you so long. He's been, he'd been expecting somebody to fire him for a while. And he was just making as much money as he could, as long as he could, so that he could support the startup that he's part of. <laughs> so I don't know. We make up a lot of stories in our heads about how it's going to go. And in my experience, it rarely goes that way. It's not always good, but it's usually not as bad as what I can imagine. Thinking about this, the story of the person that turned it around at Zynga. Yeah. And what we were talking about earlier, in particular, I think with reference to Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, and also what we were we were talking about regarding people's uh, ability to feel brave enough to express an imperfect opinion and not be hauled over yeah. the coals for doing so. It's, it seems at least that there's a theme emerging here of needing to give people a chance or a way back. Yes. 
and making sure that you actually hold that space for someone mm-hmm. without without it being taken advantage of. I think one of the hardest things for us to realize as humans is that other humans will grow and change. I mean, if we just say it, yeah, but I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen in years. And the way he talked about me was not the way I am now, that I'd spent a lot of time working on some of my less lovely qualities. And and I realized we expect people, I guess it's like growth mindset, you know, like there's a fixed mindset, which is I was given these talents and that's who I'm going to be forever and growth mindset, which is I'm not very good at this, but if I really dig in, I can get better. I think we have that on other people. There's people who think, oh, you're just born that way. You're never going to change. My ex-husband very much that way. And then there's other people who believe in people's opportunities to grow. And I'm definitely in that second camp. And so when I'm interacting with people, I believe that everybody could become the best version of themselves, whatever that is. I'm not here to say who you're supposed to be, but I am here, especially for my students, to help them in the ways they want to grow. And I believe that everybody's capable of growing should you choose to grow. You spoke about candor earlier, radical candor, Mm -hmm. and how that dovetails in with what we're talking here around feedback. If you think back about that experience at Zynga and at MySpace that you recounted there about people not being brave enough to address the issues that were quite evident with this particular VP, what are the conditions that need to be in place to make it more likely that peers, not necessarily just managers, but peers, that we feel safe enough and brave enough to directly address behavior that is not acceptable with our colleagues? Yeah. I mean, one thing that's really important is don't wait too long because that feeling of needing to give feedback, the longer you wait, the more you're going to kind of start getting angry and bitter and make up stories about that person in your head. Uh, You don't want to ever guess a meaning for why they're doing it. You don't know. Like you could make guess a meaning, which is, oh, maybe their kid's sick and they're just being rude because their kid's sick. Or you can make up a story where they're a natural born asshole and they treat everybody like that. You got, no- you got nothing. You don't know. You don't ever know. Right. So all you can do is say, I see this and it's bothering me and I'd like to know more. So I can say, I see you interrupting a lot. And I can see it's affecting this other person or it's affecting me. You're interrupting me a lot. And I know how I feel. And I'm a big fan of, I'd like to, and this is the formal version. I don't know if you ever want to say this to a human being, but I'd like to invite you to work with me to solve it. So you could be more relaxed about it and say, hey, you know, this is happening. And um, is there anything I could do, you know, to help? Or what do you think, how are we going to make this person feel more comfortable, you know, who just got ran over? It's delicate, especially if you're advocating for someone else. It's always easier to advocate for yourself because you genuinely know what's happening to you. Um, I was part of a meeting where we had a guest talking about things and it was part in person and part Zoom, which is always very complicated. And there was somebody remote who was asking a question and explaining it. And the person who was facilitating interrupted that person, which I, I'm, I'm very sensitive about interruptions because it's women who get interrupted. And this person is like super big, famous, important, done mind boggling work, the person on the Zoom. And so this other person, I felt it was very, it was rude. And I quietly reached out and I said, you know, this is a thing I observed and I don't know how it landed, but I just want to make sure you're aware that you, that you were doing that. 
because if you're a facilitator, you don't do that. You don't interrupt people. You got to be cool, gentle, you know, supportive. And he wrote to the woman and she's like, oh, did that happen? I didn't even notice it. <laughs> and so was it a mountain out of a molehill or was it useful information? You know, it's up to the person who I gave feedback to. I'm being very careful with names because it's a relatively recent situation. But You talked about how as you get older, you run out of fucks to give. And <laughs> yes. I, I want to come back to a slightly younger Christina in 2014. Mm -hmm. I watched your talk, The Executioner's Tale, and mm -hmm. you opened that talk with a, a Zen story or a parable yeah. of sorts about the farmer and the wild horses. Oh, yes. How does that story go? And how does that <laughs> actually, the essence of that story, how does that tie back into what we're talking here about being brave enough to give oh. feedback like that that you just gave? Well, I will say that when I do the radical focus talk now, I use uh, a different a Greek myth that is more aligned with the story. But that is one of my favorite Zen parables. I've read, I've read 101 Zen stories like hundreds of times, so I can tell Zen stories all day long, and I love them. And so that one is about a farmer in a small village in China. And he had a son, you know, who was, I don't know, young man age. And one day the son brought back a wild, like three wild horses, I think it is. And everybody in the village who's in everybody's business, the way small towns are, I grew up in a small town in Iowa, rush over and go, oh my gosh, what good fortune. How awesome was this? You got this, you, you, you found this free horse, you know, free horse, it's cool. And the far, old farmer who wasn't much of a talker goes, we'll see. So the next day, the young man is trying to break the horse, you know, trying to tame it. And he falls off and this horse steps on him. He breaks his collarbone. He breaks his arm. He breaks a leg. And everybody in the village, of course, rushes over to say, oh, man, the day you found those horses, that was a, a bad day. What bad luck. How horrible. Your poor son. And the old man says, well, we'll see. And then about a week or so later, you know, the son's all casted up and whatnot, bandaged. And the army comes through and they're taking all young men of a certain age off to fight a war that they are losing badly. But they don't take the son because he's all messed up. The villagers all come and say, oh, thank God your son doesn't have to go off to this pointless war. And I think you know what the old man said. So I also tell my students, you know, at some point or another, you're going to walk away from $5 million. The problem is you won't know until it's way too late. <laughs> And I think about the time when I interviewed at Google and they're really small. I think there's 70 people. And I just hated them. I just disliked Marissa Meyer. I loathed Larry Page. And I called the recruiter and said, I don't want to go forward with this interview. And it's happened again. You know, you just, you just don't know. You don't get to know. All you can do is do the thing that you feel is right at the time and see what happens. There's some beautiful simplicity in that, but it seems to me at least a very difficult thing for us to do. You know, it's really easy for us as people to get wrapped up in what's going on. I mean, in the broader context, we've got war in Ukraine. We've got potential global food shortages. We've just been through a pandemic. The States has had a it's civil rights over. reckoning. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how, how, if at all, has your perspective on the essence of that parable changed as a result of the overall disruption that we've collectively experienced over the past three to four years? 
it's that's such a complicated question because there's so many elements to it, right? I believe, okay, so first of all, I hate not getting to know. This has become my one of my phrases I tell myself, you don't get to know because I'm a learner. I love knowing. Like I want to chase down people and say, what was that talk conversation about? What were you two talking about? What's happening? You know, I'm dying for that. But there's some things you just don't get to know and you have to make your peace with that. And that's already a practice, certainly for me. I don't get to know what's going to happen. I don't know how the Ukrainian war is going to work out. I don't know if we're going to save the planet from dying. I just don't know. And then you get to the second part, which is, okay, there's so many things going wrong. What can I do? And that's a really useful question, but you can't do everything. That's another thing you have to accept. I cannot work on all of these problems. I don't have the time. I don't have the knowledge. I think a lot of designers in particular are very hubristic in that they'll dive in and try to fix something they don't understand at all. I see that in D-School quite a bit. And so you have to ask yourself, what is my body of knowledge, right? And then you can say, okay, I'm gonna pick this problem and I'm gonna work on that because it's a, it's a place I can move the needle. So I, I founded Women Talk Design because I was so tired of people saying, I can't find any women to speak at my conference. It's like, that's bullshit. I thought, let me make it insanely easy to get rid of that excuse. Let me create a directory. And then I was able to raise a bunch of money and I hired a couple of my students from CCA who didn't have internships. And I asked them to research the problem and talk to speakers and everything. And they discovered something really exciting, which was, yes, conference people have trouble finding speakers, possibly out of laziness, who knows, possible or other reasons, but the women often are afraid to speak. And then if they are happy to speak and they get interrupted, they often recommend men. So I shared this with Danielle Barnes, who stepped in to take Women Talk Design to the next level. The fundraising showed me there was something bigger than just a blog there. And oh my God, Danielle's amazing. She's an unsung hero and she should be sung a lot more. And she dug in and started doing the trainings to teach women. And you know, we, she and I collaborated on them and we really wanted it to teach women how to speak in their own way with their own ideas, as opposed to here's how to talk like a white guy. You know, let's teach people how to present themselves in a truly authentic manner and then create community. Because if there's one thing I know, community creates resiliency. And so if you had a bad time or somebody hit on you or you're talking about how you wanted, if you have a community, it's like, oh, you're going to get it next time. It's, it's so much better. So that was something, I, a space I understood enough and presenting yourself and telling stories I knew enough that I could actually go in and make a difference there. And you could say, well, Christina, how's that helping the planet from not set lighting on fire at some point? And it's, I like to think that maybe somebody that we trained will talk about the science in a way that it's accessible and people can understand it and they'll, they'll care and they'll step up. I don't know. You do what you can and you hope for the best. And I think that's all you can do. And just doom scrolling and worrying is just, it's not going to make you happy and it's not going to change anything. So instead, pick pick the thing you can move and work on that. Even if it's just an hour a week because you've got kids and a full-time job, it makes a difference. From one deeply insightful thing that you've just said to something else that you've said in the past, which I'll quote you again, you said you get your authority through your own confidence, your own kindness, your own strength. And that's something no title is going to give you. So the more you spend time getting to know who you are and learning to love that, 
the better. So you talked there about women talk design and wanting to give those women more confidence in expressing themselves authentically. But if we take that thread and then we think more broadly about the people listening today, if there's someone struggling, as we all do from time to time, with finding that confidence and expressing that confidence in a way that connects with others, where's a good place for people to start to get to know themselves a little bit better and to develop that confidence? I like therapy. I think therapy is awesome. (laughs) I recommend getting therapy. And something nobody talks about that I've seen anyway is that the first therapist you meet may not be the right one for you. So you have to shop around a little bit. You should talk to maybe three different people. I, When I decided to get a, a coach, a personal coach, I met Andrea Corney, who's amazing. And she said, I won't take you on as a client unless so you talk to two different coaches. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing. And I did. And I worked with her. And I've, I've been in and out of therapy various times in my life. I, I'm lucky enough that I realized it was something that would help me. And when I've had harder times in my life, I've gone into therapy. And having someone to talk to you who only cares about your well-being, that's all they care about. You know, they're, they're there to help you get better. And if they're not there, don't work with them. If you go two or three times and you realize they're not there for that, then get someone else. Like, don't... People will test drive multiple cars, but they'll take whatever therapist they're given. No, don't do that. <laughs> so I would say if you've done it and it didn't work out, it could quite easily be that person. It's just not a good fit for you. And fit is more important than competence, I would say. If you find the right person and you can talk to them, then you will really learn and you'll start working on these things that are scary. And you'll start realizing, and you'll also build a lot more metacognition and self-awareness because that's what they do. I'm a big fan of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but my favorite is actually mindfulness-based therapy. I've meditated most of my life. And I think that as you become more self-aware and you become more grounded in who you are, managing these challenges becomes more straightforward. Just thinking about bringing the show down to a close now. Just a little earlier, you told the story of the Zen fa- the Zen story of the farmer and the wild horses. Now, there's another Zen story. I know you said you've read a book of 101 of them, so I'm only picking and picking one one more out of that book, probably. But there's another one that I heard you speak about, which is about the monk and the professor having a cup of tea. Yeah. How does that story go? Oh, a cup of tea. That's a classic. Uh, a professor who is researching Zen you know, came in to have tea with this monk and ask him questions. And they sat down and the monk made tea and was pouring the teacher's cup and kept pouring and pouring. And it went over onto the table and down the floor. And the professor's like, stop, stop. The cup is over full. And the monk says, just like this cup, your mind is so full of your own opinions and your own ideas that you can't learn anything from me. If you want to learn something, you're going to have to enter the cup. That's my Nina (laughs) barking in the background, just in time. So I think it is important, you know, when Zen people talk about beginner's mind, they're talking about a cup of tea. That's the first story in the book. And I think it's a good place to be. I have no idea what she's barking about. Probably saying, hey, friend, come play with me. Come play with me. Yeah, I think think that's a big one. You know, I was thinking about another one that I think is a really useful one. 
which was about, uh, it's always about monks, right? It's about these two monks who were traveling from one monastery to another one. And there was a woman uh, standing by a stream dressed up as a geisha, you know, beautiful, all the makeup and socks and stuff. Nina, soft bark. Come on, babe. Goodness. And so, uh, so the, the, old, the, the older monk, you know, picks her up, carries her across the stream, puts her down and goes back on the journey. And about five miles later, the younger monk turns to him and says, we're not supposed to touch women like that. Why did you lift her? Why did you carry her? And the older monk says, I left her at the stream. Why are you still carrying her? And I think about that all the time because, you know, I could be like beating myself up for three hours saying, whoa, why did I put my dog out? It's ruining the podcast. Everything's terrible. Or I could say, mm, she barked. It's no big deal. Or I could even say next time I'll put her in the bedroom, whatever. But you don't want to be like beating yourself up forever when you do something wrong. And I think that'll be get easier to take feedback if you can leave the feedback at the stream. Well, I think that's a wonderful place for us to leave this conversation. Christina, thank you. What a wide ranging and really deep, intensely deep, actually, certainly many light bulbs that have been going off for me conversation that we've had today. Thank you for sharing your insights and your stories with everybody who's listening and for your contributions to the fields of design and product for over the past 30 years or so. Well, it is called Brave UX. Mm. I had to be brave. <laughs> you certainly brought the brave. <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you. Hey, Christina, if people want to find out more about you and the wonderful writing that you've done and the talks that you give, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I always like to point out that I have a ridiculously rare name. So you can actually use Google. I'm first initial last name everywhere. So you can find me on Twitter. And of course, my original blog, which I've been working on since... 2000, I guess, 22 years of a blog is eleganthack.com. It's a, I haven't posted in a little while, but I will post again. I always come back to Elegant Hack. Thanks, Christina. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Christina, Elegant Hack, and all the other great things that she has contributed to the field. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe. And also, if you feel that there's just someone, just could be one person that would get some value out of these conversations at depth, then please pass the podcast along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Like Christina, I've got a fairly, fairly, but perhaps not as unique name, but just type in Brendan Jarvis. I'm sure you'll find me. There's also a link to my uh, LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes. You can get to me there or head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, man.